0: For Samuel chapter 12. For Samuel chapter 12 today, I know I was going to do chapter 12, 13, and 15. It seemed like a good idea when I wrote the outline. Not such a good idea when I dove into chapter 12. So um, that happens. Uh, there, there's an entire sermon in chapter 12. There's actually three sermons in chapter 12. I will just do one today. We can do another one on Wednesday if you'd like. This chapter is one of covenant renewal. It's one of calling us back into a right relationship with God because we have broken that relationship. One of the most damaging components of sin that's left unchecked by the gospel of grace is the disintegration of healthy, vibrant, godly relationships. When sin enters a people, we see marriages torn apart, we see parent child relationships destroyed. We see relationships between governments and its citizens, between employers and employees, man and his creation. Every way we look, we see brokenness. We see relationships that were ordained by God and, and, and given operating parameters by God to be right and healthy, just the opposite, fractured and broken, not as they ought to be. And this is because every relationship created and ordained by God has certain fixed operating parameters. In a marriage... Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for the church. Wives are to lovingly submit to their husbands. In the home, parents are to train their children the way they should go so when they're older they won't depart from it. And children are to honor and obey their parents. In the church, we're called to love and serve one another as Christ loves and serves us even this hour. When these parameters for right relationships are broken or when they're perverted and they're twisted then we find suffering. In man's relationship with God, it is a covenantal relationship. The ordained structure of the relationship between God and man is one of covenant. That means both parties are bound together by agreed upon obligations one to another. Simply put, Jeremiah 31, 33, God said, I will be their God and they will be my people. God said, I will be your God I will love you. I will provide for your needs. I will protect you. I will guide you. I will teach you. I will deliver you from your sins. I will be your God. That is my end of the covenant. And you will be my people. Meaning what? You will worship me. You will glorify my name. You will faithfully submit to my teachings and my commands. You will live as I created and ordained you to live. And that is the covenant. What we find in our narrative today, as we have seen throughout all of human history, Is God faithfully keeping his end of the bargain? God keeps the covenant. He's faithful to the covenant. And mankind again and again and again breaking the covenant. In 1 Samuel 12, we find that God's people have broken their covenant with God, their king, by asking for another king. But it cannot remain broken. If there's any hope for Israel... In the time of Samuel, if there's any hope for us today, then the covenant that is broken by us must be renewed by God. And so, what is what happens here? Samuel, the great prophet, calls the entire nation, all the Israelites, to gather at Gilgal, where God then comes and He reestablishes the covenant they broke. And from this gathering and God's supernatural intervention, we see three things by God's grace this morning: one, the fidelity of God and His anointed; God is faithful to the covenant and his anointed are faithful as well. Number two, the covenant broken and then renewed. And number three, the need for repentance and intercession. Let's look at uh, the first point, the fidelity of God and his anointed. Verses one through 11, if you have your Bible open, we find this chapter starting off with Samuel, the great prophet, presenting himself before the people for covenant examination. He says, I want you to try me. Samuel takes himself and he puts himself on trial. Look at verses one through five. Samuel said to all of Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Verse two, and now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Verse 4. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day. That you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel, God's anointed, comes before the people. And he says, examine my life. Examine how I have been a judge over you. Examine my years of ministry. He says, play back the tapes. Open up the books. Full disclosure. Complete transparency. What have I taken from you? How have I defrauded you? How have I oppressed you? God's anointed asked the people. From his youth, his entire life, in a position of authority. And no man had a single accusation to render against him. It's a most extraordinary statement. I I could come before you this hour and ask the same thing, and I'd have several hands go up and say, I got something against you, pastor. This man's entire ministry, not a single accusation, God's anointed had faithfully fulfilled his role as a leader of God's people to the glory of God in keeping the covenant. Look at verse four. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Someone asked this week, well, what is is Samuel doing? Is he he on a glory ride here? Is he trying to get, you know, a pat on the back before he goes out, before he relinquishes the reign to Saul? Not at all. Samuel is not interested in bringing glory to himself. He's establishing his faithful commitment to the covenant. And that was this, that under his leadership, the ordained appointment of Samuel by God, Israel had peace. There was peace in the land because Samuel, God's anointed, was faithful to keep the covenant that God himself established. Israel enjoyed justice and effective administration. The people could not claim, therefore, that it was a wise choice to ask for another king. The one that God ordained to rule over them had done quite a nice job. In other words, they had no excuse for their actions in asking for a king other than God. God had graciously provided a faithful judge to watch over and lead them, and Samuel was faithful. This has been the storyline from the beginning. Not only has God equipped, not only did he equip Samuel to faithfully lead his people, throughout the history of the Old Testament, we find God equipping men to lead God's people in a right covenant relationship. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, now therefore stand still, Samuel says to the people, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your forefathers. Samuel takes the entire nation and he brings them into the classroom. He says, let's do a history lesson here. Let's look back at this faithful God and the faithful servants that he anointed over you. And let's see how he failed in guiding you and directing you and saving you and ministering to you. Let's see how he failed. And again and again, as he draws up these names, we find that God was faithful and the anointed were faithful to do that which God had called and commanded them to do. When the people were faithful in following and worshiping Yahweh, God protected them and provided for their every need according to the covenant. When they turned away and they worshiped other gods, he graciously brought An external force, an enemy. Pharaoh, Sisera, tells us here, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, he brought them in to exercise oppression upon them. Why? Because he's a mean, vengeful God? So they would cry out and repent. And every time they did, every single time they cried out to God for relief again and again, he heard their cries and he delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. Every time. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord, and they said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. This was a history lesson of profound magnitude. I taught history for years, and I can tell you that most lessons do not have this type of weight. The covenant God had established with his people had a consistent storyline. It goes something like this God would deliver the Israelites, he would deliver his people from their enemies. They would love and worship and serve him for a time. Time would pass, comfort and complacency would set in, the blessings of God would flow, and the people would turn away from the living God to the Baals, to the Astaroth, to the false gods, and worship and serve them. And that God would graciously bring a crisis. He brings Sisera or the Philistines, or the Moabites or the Ammonites, and he would cause them to see their slavery and their sin and their wickedness and their rebellion. He would cause the people to see that they had rebelled against him, that the people had broken the covenant with God. And in bringing this, this sight to them, they would then repent. they'd cry out for mercy, and God, who is faithful and just, to his covenant, what would he do? He would hear their cry. He would save them from their enemies. He would establish himself once again as their God and they his people. And then that repeats itself again and again and again. Read the book of Judges. That is the storyline. In fact, we can say that's the storyline for the history of God's people. Not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. God delivers us, he blesses us, we turn from him, we worship false gods, he brings an oppressor, we see our sin, we repent, cry out for mercy, he delivers us from that, and then we start the cycle over again. The key is God's consistent faithfulness to his people. In the midst of our unfaithfulness... God remains faithful. In the midst of our sin and rebellion, God remains faithful to the covenant. We break it again and again and again. Every time we sin, we break the covenant. And God comes back to us. As born again Christians, saved by grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have God's love, you have His watch care over you, you have His guidance, you have His protection, you have His provisions. You are blessed beyond measure. Blessings a thousand times beyond what we have right now. We know that. We know that. That means then that every time we sin, every time we engage in uh, conscious, willful, habitual sin and turn from God and know we ought not be, every single time we engage in the same vicious cycle that we see taking place amongst the Israelites. And the longer we continue in the sin, the more destructive it becomes until the sin by God's grace And it is grace that he shows us it is utterly sinful, and we begin to hate the sin, and then we turn from it, and we turn back to God, and we say, God, forgive me. I'm such a wretched sinner. Forgive me for turning against you. Forgive me for rebelling against your word, for not hearing your voice. We seek forgiveness, and what does God do every time? What does he do? He says, I forgive you. I forgive you. And he calls us back into right covenant relationship every single time. We studied that in 1 John. God said that John told us that God is faithful and just and that he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness every single time we seek his forgiveness. And we must because we're the ones that have broken the covenant. You cannot blame God for breaking the relationship in a covenant. God does not. He will not and he cannot. Samuel wanted them to see this. That their situation Their prosperity and their their oppression was not random and whimsical. It wasn't haphazard. Their prosperity and their oppression was a direct result of their relationship with the living God. Their breaking the covenant or their living in accordance with the covenant. So first we see the faithfulness of God and his anointed, which should give us great hope. That God will not turn away from those that he has ordained to save. Second thing I want us to see, point number two, is the covenant being broken and the necessity of it being renewed. If a relationship is broken, it needs to be renewed. If if Lori and I get into an argument, that needs to be resolved. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be confession. There needs to be reconciliation. Or there's still a brokenness. Same with God. So Samuel makes his case... He argues scripture, he argues history, he argues reason, he calls upon God to be his witness. He testifies to the truthfulness of the claims that God has been faithful and the people have been unfaithful. It was a rousing, no doubt, expository, biblically-based sermon that should have brought great conviction and immediate repentance upon the people. Should have. But as with most of us, unless it becomes immediately personal, and let us, Unless God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes his word and presses it upon your heart and mind, we will not hear God's word. Hearing God's word is an act of God's grace. In order for us to hear, God must do a work. And so here we have Samuel preaching a fantastic message that should have brought conviction and it did not. I imagine most of them rendered themselves as we do. They'll write themselves out of the sermon. When we hear this, we think, well, I I know who I am. I'm not the disobedient, rebellious Israelites. I'm Samuel. I'm Moses. I want to be like David. I want to be like Barak. Not the Israelites. How oftentimes do our own personal crises, and usually it's the most recent crisis, always seems to be the worst crisis, right? Much worse than any other crisis we've ever had. Much worse than any other crisis you've ever had. Right, And in that moment, just like we see with the Israelites, instead of turning to God and seeking God to save them, they turn to something else. In this particular case, they asked for a king other than God. Look at verse 12. Samuel holds their feet to the fire a bit. He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. We saw this last week. Nahash the Ammonite, as he was besieging those at Jabesh Gilead, desiring to gouge out their right eyes to humiliate them, they didn't turn to God. They asked for a king. Generation after generation, God has proved faithful to deliver his people from the hand of the enemy. Every time they cried out, every time he delivered them from their own self induced slavery and death, every time. But now, in the face of Nahash the Ammonite, in the face of uh, Nahash coming in and and bringing harm and destruction upon them and and making them slaves, they see their situation differently than all their past situations. There was no other crisis in the nation of Israel that could have been worse than this one in their eyes. And so they conveniently forgot their covenant God and instead of crying out to him, they cried out for an earthly king. They didn't seek God to deliver them as they had at mitzvah. They didn't go to God in prayer and fasting, saying, God, deliver us from this enemy. They didn't go to God, worshiping him and trusting him to protect them and provide them in the midst of this movement of darkness. And in asking for a king, they broke the covenant with God. And asking for the king, they said to God, the king, we don't want you, we want someone else. We don't want you to be our king and our deliverer, we want someone else to be our king and our deliverer. This should have been the end of the covenant. This should have been the end of the Israelites being God's people. But years prior, Moses, who knew better, wrote in Exodus 34 this, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Listen, saints, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. My beloved, how God's love, how his love abounds in the midst of adamant rebellion against him, rather than breaking the covenant altogether and destroying them immediately, which he would have been just to do, he exercises compassion and mercy, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he gives them what? He gives them another chance. He gives them another chance, another, another chance to enter once again into a right relationship with him. And this wasn't their first second chance or their second second chance. This particular generation had rebelled again and again. And God kept coming back to him again and again and saying, seek my face and I will forgive you. Look at verses 14 and 15. These are such encouraging verses. God tells them what they ought to do. Verses 14 and 15 says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. In other words, it wasn't too late. Had they sinned, yes. Had they sinned grievously, yes. They rejected God as their king, and they said, We want another king. And yet here God says to them, it's not too late. You have grievously broken the covenant I established with you. God, the creator, had his creation, those created in his image saying, we don't want you as God, we don't want you as king, put someone else over us. Another chance, another day given by God to learn from their mistakes and make things right. How so? By fearing God, by serving God, by obeying God, by loving God. How the people respond? How did they respond? We can only assume that by what comes next, they had that look in their eye. Now, you may not know this look, but I know this look. After preaching and teaching for 14 years, I know the look of the word of God going forth and it not being received. It'll go and it'll bounce off. They must have had that look, that look that goes something like this as they're listening to Samuel preach, blah, 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 Samuel, yeah, yeah, come on. We've heard it all before, a hundred times, serve God, obey his voice, don't rebel against commands and all be well. We've heard this and we know the opposite. Serve other gods, obey our own voices, dismiss the laws of God and, and God will be against us. We've heard it a million times, Samuel. My beloved, how often do we hear the word of God and not hear the word of God? How often? How often do we, when we read our Bibles, not hear God speak? How often have you come into this sanctuary and heard me go on for an hour and walk out going, I don't don't know what he's talking about. I mean, You hear me, certainly. I don't talk softly. I know that unless you have a hearing problem, you hear, but do you hear God? Do you hear the word of God? Do you submit to the word of God? How often do we want to have our ears tickled by something other than the word of God? We want a vain platitude. We want humorous stories. We want anything that can comfort and feed the flesh. I received an advertisement, and I was adverse to it, in the mail recently of a church nearby where the, one of the selling points is that the pastor's sermons are funny. They're funny sermons. How often does God speak to us directly from the Bible Truth claims that we know to be real, and yet we do not they do not take root. They don't go deep and change the way we think, change the way we talk, change the way we relate to people. How often? How often do you open your word in the morning to hear God speak to you and you leave and He hasn't spoken to you? He was faithful to speak, but we did not receive it. It has not been infrequent in my ministry over the years to hear a brother or sister use a particular passage to come alongside a brother or sister with a particular passage to hold them accountable for that sin or a particular sin when the very passage that should be screaming truth and conviction into the believer's life who was bringing the word fell on deaf ears. Remember Jesus said, remove the speck from your eye. Remove the plank from your eye first before you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, the Israelites were equally unmoved by Samuel's sermon. They may have believed Samuel cognitively, but it did not resonate in their hearts. How do we know this? Because of what God does next. God decided to step up the revelation a bit. This was a prophet of God. Samuel's a prophet of God. Not a single word, it tells us, that he would speak would fall to the ground. That means everything would be fulfilled. They knew that. He had been faithful his entire ministry, and yet they were not hearing him. So, what does God do? He wants to make sure they're going to hear. He wants to take the teachings of Samuel, and he himself personally is going to press it in deep. How does he do it? Look at verses 16 through 18. Samuel says, Now therefore stand still. This is terrifying. He says, Stand still, don't move. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Verse 17, he says, It is not wheat harvest today. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Verse 18, So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. There was fear It was trembling. Samuel gave them no opportunity to speak, and I'm thankful, because had he, they likely would have engaged in religious ramblings. You know, they would have called upon Deuteronomy 17, 14, where God had prophesied through Moses that at some point in time, these people were going to reject God as king and call for themselves their own king. They'd have said, oh, they'd have drawn upon that. How quickly do we do that? how quickly do a word is coming to us from a brother or sister that we hear it and we immediately reject it or we take it and we twist it to rationalize or justify our own sin. Taking scripture verses out of context and using them instead of hearing, repenting and being saved, using them to justify rebellion against God. Not this day. This day, God would ensure that all who were present would hear and respond correctly to Samuel's preaching and teaching. This, this day, Samuel was going to be heard. And God would make sure of that. A little bit of thunder. There are times when I thought, how nice it would be to have a little bit of thunder. You know, Kirk says to me, I can do a sound effect. I said, no, that will be cheap. That would be cheap. It was the harvest season in Israel sometime May or June after the spring rains a time when heavy rain would have been highly unusual and for it to immediately follow what Samuel said had to be a sign from God, proof positive. Look at verse 17. Samuel says, And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking yourselves for a king and the thunder and the rain came that very day. God was going to make sure that this word proclaimed by Samuel did not fall on any deaf ears. And so he intervenes supernaturally. But what did it mean? And what, what, what was the thunder and the rain? What did it signify? Was God simply showing off his might, saying, look, I am the creator of the universe. Thunder, no big deal for me. Rain, no big deal for me. God wanted them to see what means of destruction. Listen closely, saints. What means of destruction he held in his hands. The power that he had to exercise his justice if they continued in their sin and rebellion. He wanted them to take Samuel's word seriously. He wanted them to hear the word of God. He wanted them to take the covenant seriously. He's saying, I'm your God, you're my people, start living like it. He wanted them to hear Samuel, call them back to this covenant relationship and not, and not say, you know what, we don't care about the covenant curses They were talked about in detail in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. They're there in great detail. We even get it here. Look at verse 25. God says, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. If the people only heard blah, 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 then they were rejecting the word of God and they were calling God a liar. Now, my beloved, I beg you, do not jump on that foolish pseudo-evangelical bandwagon and think to yourself fear is not the right motivation to submit to God I hate that the Bible says in several places but in particular Job 28, 28 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and to depart from evil that's understanding the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom why else would the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 say this? Why would he say this? He says to the people in Colossae, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Why? He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says, put them away. Why should we? Because God's wrath is coming. Be afraid. Be terrified. Be terrified. Now, I know in our cultural moment and in many churches, this teaching on the fear of the Lord has been diminished or done away with altogether. But saints, if there is a legitimate foundation for fearing God, and we diminish that or ignore it or teach contrary to it, then I would argue with the Apostle Paul, we are the greatest of people to be pitied. We're the greatest of fools. I have always been amazed at the fear response that can be elicited in watching a movie. I've always been amazed by it. And I know, I'm know i not a big movie guy, but I know a good movie can scare people. In fact, some movies are designed just to scare people. Now, if you're watching a movie like The Lord of the Rings, I'll give you the few that I know, the fear that you may experience is still unfounded. Right? If you watch the, the, the Lord of the Rings and you say, you know, those orcs, they scare me. I'm afraid of the orcs. That's problematic for two reasons. One, the orcs are not real. It is a fictional story. You do know that. Sometimes evangelicals have to make that distinction between they're not real. But secondly, it's a movie. Even in 3D, they can't come out of the screen and bring you any harm. There's no founded fear in the orcs. Now, if you leave the movie theater and you're walking to your car and a group of orcs are coming your way, you should be rightly afraid. You should be. You would go, oh the popcorn if there is reason to be afraid saints we ought to be afraid neither the individual believer nor the church should ever be above real terror and i'm not talking about terror from a movie i'm not even talking about the type of terror that can be exercised amongst mankind i'm talking about real terror jesus said in luke chapter 12 verse 5 listen This is your Savior. This is Christ talking. He said, I'll warn you whom to fear. You want to be afraid? I'll tell you whom to fear. He said, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is saying, you better fear my father because my father is a holy God. If God gives us a glimpse of our sin in light of his absolute holiness, and he enables us to, for a moment, just a moment, like they did at Gilgal with the thunder and the rain. If he can get you to see for a moment his displeasure with that sin and the consequences for that sin being an eternity in hell. If there isn't fear, then you haven't seen it. All you need is a glimpse. All you need is an Isaiah chapter 6 moment where you come into the presence of a holy God. You say, woe to me, I'm a dead man. That God is holy and I'm a sinner. That's a right response. There needs to be more fear of the Lord in the church today. There needs to be more preaching and teaching on the fear of the Lord today. That we rightly tremble before this holy God. I'm so tired, my ears burn with this. When I come into the presence of God, this is what I'm going to say. You'll be rendered moot. You will not speak. Someone said the other day, I, can't, I don't even want to call who it is, about what they were going to tell God about this situation in their life. You will fall down and cover your face, and you'll say, Woe to me. I'm a man of sinful lips, and I live amongst a people of sinful lips. He wanted them to tremble at Gilgal. He wanted them to see the depth of their sin and the consequences of that sin being hell. He wanted them to see it. He wanted them to be utterly terrified. He desires the same for us this morning. He desires that we might see his holiness and tremble before him this morning. Why? For the same reasons that we might repent and be restored as well. This morning. He wants us to hear his thundering today. His thundering. If I had the prophetic power to make a similar statement to Samuel and God thundered this moment and rain came down in this very place, there would be right fear God desires that fear independent of a supernatural experience. He desires that fear by you hearing his word. God knew. He knew. He knows us. He knew that the only way they would see the the evil and the motive behind their asking for a king is if they had a right fear of him. He knew that. And so he struck fear into their hearts. Why? So they would turn back to him. He thundered from above so they would repent and come back into a right relationship with the living God. He, in other words, he lovingly terrified them. This is not the father playing a really bad joke on his son when he goes to take out the garbage. Guilty of that. That's not what is happening here. This is the living God lovingly terrifying us that we might repent of our sins and turn to him. We know, we know that we need to see this clearly as well. It's only when we see the depth of our sin because we see a holy God. It's only when we see the wrath of God and the consequences for that sin either being poured out on us if we're unsaved or poured out on Christ, which I think is even worse. Yeah, we're saved, but then the wrath is poured out upon him. It's only when we see that that we too will repent and be healed. We're no different than the Israelites at Gilgal. We're not the Samuels and we're not the Moses. We are the rebellious people. Are you terrified? So God first reveals his faithfulness and the faithfulness of the anointed. He does that. And then secondly, he reveals that the covenant had been broken by them and it needed to be renewed. And he does that great work. He's the one that calls them. He's the one that strikes fear into their hearts. He's the one that causes them to repent. He's doing all the work. That's why he gets all the glory. So what, what do we need to do? God's faithful The relationship is broken. God faithfully restored. What do we need to do? Repent and we need an intercessor. Verses 19 through 25. Look at verse 19. There's need for repentance. Last point here. And all the people said to Samuel, this is after his sermon, which was sufficient. It was the word of God. And then after the thunder and after the rain, the people are terrified. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants. Pray for us to the Lord your God. Isn't that fascinating? Pastor Todd brought this up this morning. They don't say pray to our God. They say pray to your God. Pray to your God who just thundered and terrified us that we might not what? That we might not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They get it. I mean, there's a moment of crystal clarity where everything aligns and truth and perception are the same. And they see for that moment, and it's only for a moment, because we know the rest of the story. But for this moment, they see the holiness of God. They see their their sin that has abounded. They see that God has made himself manifest, and they see the great danger they're in. They say, pray, Samuel, pray to your God, because we're going to die. Pray, and don't stop praying. Standing before this unseen holy God who has made himself a little more visible with thunder and rain they realized that they had added to all their sins by asking for a king, and they now deserve to die. Not one argument, not one Israelite's trying to rationalize or justify or spin their sin anymore. They just petition Samuel to pray because they know their just desert is death. No more excuses, no more twisting. They see clearly. Those are glorious moments, saints, aren't they? When you see your sin in the presence of the holy God, you don't try to spin it anymore. Your prayers become very short. God, forgive me. God, save me. God, have mercy upon me. You know, God, that really wasn't my fault why my brother did that to me. And here's how the story goes. Those are foolish prayers. God knows. He knows. The plain and simple truth is this, that all mankind everywhere this morning would do well to hear about God's holiness in our sin. How glorious that would be if every man and woman and child this morning would hear of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the need for a savior. What else would you have to say? If they could get that, if they could see in crystal clarity like the Israelites at Gilgal did, that God really is infinitely more holy than we could possibly imagine and that our sin is really infinitely worse than we could ever dream, if that's all true. Too loud. loud. (laughs) I'll talk softer. When Paul said in Romans, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he meant we have all fallen infinitely short of the righteousness of God. That's just a little bit. We have all fallen infinitely short of the righteousness of God. That even our most righteous deeds, all those things we do in Christ, all those things we do by the Spirit of God, even those things are like filthy rags before his holiness. Contaminated by sin. Catastrophic. Failures in living as God created and intended us to live. Catastrophic failures. And therefore are deserving to die, to be condemned as they saw at Gilgal, are seeing it today. It's imminently reasonable. But no one, no one wants to die. No one wants to go to hell. No one wants to have an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies. And the smoke never ceases to rise up to the heavens. No one wants that. In the presence of God, with the thunder and the rain, they are rightfully afraid and they cry out to Samuel to pray for them. What would God do with their prayer? What does God do with all of those who commit spiritual suicide in their sin and rebellion against this holy God and realize it to be true? and know it. Those of us who have rebelled again and again and see it for what it really is. When God came to you and he opened your eyes and you went, oh, I am that sinner. I am that rebellious. I am that dark in my heart of hearts. What does God do with that person or those people who come before him and confess these sins? Look at verses 20 and 21. What does he say? Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. (laughs) Must have been thinking, were you just here? Did you hear the thunder? What, are you kidding me? Do not be afraid. Samuel says, he's speaking for God as a prophet. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. He doesn't dismiss it. He says, you've done all the evil and more. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. He comes to them and he says, don't be afraid. Even though you've done all this evil, you have evil on top of evil. You have the evil that you, you, you put on top of that asking for a king and rejecting God as your king. And God's fully aware of it all. You've hidden nothing from him. He says, don't be afraid. Don't stop following God. This is the most extraordinary thing for God to say to such a rebellious people. He says, don't be afraid. Don't stop following me, even though you're afraid. He says, don't turn aside to the idols. Don't turn aside to those things that have no power to save you. He says, but turn to me and serve me and love me with all your heart because I have the power and I have the desire to save you. He says, consider all that I've done. He says, look back. Look at everything that I've done for you. In the midst of your sin and rebellion, I have continuously remained faithful to the covenant. I have saved you. And we even know from the end of the book of Judges, he saved them even when they didn't cry out for mercy. He says, all the times that I have faithfully come to you, All the times that I have faithfully sustained you in your times of distress. All the times that I saved you from your enemies, from your sin, from yourself. God reminds them that when we cry out to him, he answers. When we turn to him, he hears us, his people. And therefore he says, I know you're afraid and you should be. But put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. He says, yes, you have rebelled. Yes, you deserve to die. But do not be afraid because I desire to save you more than I desire to condemn you. That's the most glorious thing, saints. God says, you deserve to be condemned, but I desire to save you more than I desire to condemn you. And here's where the real rub comes for us. Maybe just for me. Once we get a glimpse of the holiness of God and the total depravity of our human hearts, the depth of our sin and we fear, and we tremble, I want to run. When I'm afraid, it's either fight with God, not a good idea, you're going to lose, or you run, you try to get out, right? And here this very God is saying to us, you should be afraid, but don't be, come to me. Your fear response is a right response, but don't be, trust in me. And here's Saints, this is the very foundation of our faith, right? What is God? The very foundation of our faith, God is saying what? He's saying, Trust me. Put your faith in me. I will save you. I will deliver you. I will love you. I will guide you in the good times and the bad times. He says, Put your faith in me. He's saying to us, we must put our faith in His words that he will save us instead of destroy us. And he says that because of his destruction of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He's saying, trust me, that because of the work of my son, Jesus Christ, I will not condemn you, I will not destroy you, I will instead save you. This is my desire. When the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 takes his father's money and then goes and he squanders it all on reckless living, Most of you know this story. He finds himself at one point out of money, feeding pigs and longing to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. He's starving to death. He's in crisis. And he comes to his senses. He says, wait a minute. My father's servants eat much better than this pig eats. I'm going to go home. I have rebelled against my father. I have sinned against my father. I have taken my father's money. I have done grievous things with my father's money. But I'm going to go back to my dad. Listen. This is what we're to do. He arose and he went to his father. I apologize. I can't ever read this. I can't get through it. I guess I see myself as the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. The son hadn't spoken yet. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He was right. He was right the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and found and they began to celebrate that's the right response In our sin and in our rebellion, which we will continue to do, even in our saved states, God calls us again and again back. Why does God do this? Why does he continuously forgive and grant mercy and grace on such a rebellious people? Why does he continue to forgive you? Why does he continue to forgive me? Habitual covenant breakers that we are. Not just once, but again and again and again. Why does God do it? Most in the church today, because of the anthropocentric teachings, would say because he loves us. Which is not entirely untrue. Not entirely untrue. We know that God said through Christ that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We know that. But there's another reason, a much greater reason that's revealed to us here in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. What is that greatest purpose? That greater purpose, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about man. It's about God. Why would God continue to engage in this covenant relationship, saving us again and again and again as we turn against him? Look at verse 22. Samuel tells us this, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Did you hear that? Did you hear it right? God will not forsake his people because of his name. Why? Because it pleases him to bring honor and glory to himself. That he take people like us, wretched, deplorable, vile sinners. And he make a holy people out of us that might know him and love him and serve him and worship him forever. Some hear this and they say, that sounds so self-centered of God, so theocentric, so about God and not about man. And then you realize, wait a minute, it's God. He is the center of the universe. He is the hub of all creation. He is the one to rightly be worshipped and glorified and adored and honored. He is the creator. He is the most magnificent, worthy being to be worshipped. Everything is supposed to revolve around him. We don't like the way that sounds because we want everything to revolve around us. I mean, deep down in your sin nature, you know the reason you don't like the way that sounds is not because it's true. God should be worshiped and glorified, but because we want to be worshiped and glorified. We don't like the way it sounds because it, it teaches directly to us. We want the attention. I want it to be about me, not God. I want people to come and serve me, not God. I want people to worship me, not God. And where would we find ourselves? Right back in Genesis chapter three. We're right back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we too have to determine, are we going to worship God, the one true living God? Or are we going to try to fool ourselves into thinking that we're gods and have people worship and serve and bring us glory? It's one of the other saints. Thankfully, God desires to magnify his name and bring glory and honor to his son. And therefore he will not abandon his cause no matter how rebellious we are. Do you know that? You cannot rebel enough against God to have God forsake you if, he is, if he's anointed you and placed his hand upon you to save you. Now don't be a fool and test God on this. Because he desires to make a name for himself. He will not forsake us or abandon the covenant that he made even though he has every right to do so by our actions, again and again and again. Every time we sin, God is justified in condemning us to hell. Every time. But if you belong to him, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, then that covenant is permanent. And he will keep it for his name's sake, for his own glory, for his own honor. That should give, if you don't have an assurance of your faith going through 1 John, that should resonate in you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody in this room. The salvation of people is for God's glory. And that means we can't screw it up. We can't undo it. The covenant was made by God through Abraham for the remnant. And if you're part of that remnant, then you cannot be lost. You cannot be forsaken. Are we blessed by his unflinching faithfulness to the covenant he made? Immeasurably so. Do we deserve the blessing of God's fidelity generation after generation in the midst of our rebellion? Of course we don't. But it's for his glory. It's for his purposes. Now knowing and believing this, it should change us. It should cultivate. What does it do? It takes it off us again. Even, I've heard salvation messages that are so man-centric. Salvation is of the Lord. It's about God. I mean, Praise God that you're getting caught up in the great purposes of his bringing himself honor and glory. But it's still not about us. It's about him. And understanding this should cultivate in us a a deep gratitude, certainly great humility in loving and serving him. If this is true, if God remains faithful for his glory, not because of anything we have done, for the glory of his son and his son's name, then it should change how we see crisis in our life right when we ask for a king when we make the catastrophic mistake that you now have say you say to yourself i am now unsavable god's going to cast me out he can't forgive me there's no such thing it means that when you make those catastrophic mistakes of seeking another king of turning away from god when you do that God says, don't wallow in it. Don't keep, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. Don't keep hitting that reset button and the replay again and again. Oh, that was so bad. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, God must be so angry. Stop that. There was nothing you did to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to unsave yourself. His Grace truly is greater, as we sing, than all our sin. It's truly greater than all our sin. And therefore what? Therefore, saints, don't go back and try to reverse the consequences of your sin. Don't. I'm not saying don't go do what you need to do. If you need to reconcile, reconcile. If you need to to pay someone back for wrong, then pay them back. But stop rehashing all the sin and all the mistakes and all the calling of the king's. That does us no good. You are a sinner saved by grace, and you will continue to sin. And if you set your heart this day on trying to undo every sin you've ever done, you will miss God. What does God tell us to do? These are such encouraging words for the downcast sinner. Look again. He says in verses 20 and 21, he says essentially, take the free grace that I'm offering through Christ. And then love me, serve me, follow me, obey my voice. Look, verses 20 and 21, follow the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. He calls us, do that again and again and again and again. Accept the free grace and then follow Christ. Accept it and follow the Lord. So God tells us what he will do. He will forgive us for our sins. He tells us why he will do it for his name's sake. And we have the blessing here of even knowing the how. I don't think anybody really needs to know the how in light of the what and the why. Because it's glorious that he forgives us. But he's so gracious in pouring out his revelation. He even tells us the how here. How it is possible for us in our sin being terrified going into the presence of a holy God. He tells us how. How my sins that I know rise up to the heavens and meet God can truly be forgiven. How I can approach him and not think that I'm on some suicide mission. His warning thundered, but we still disobey. And because of his faithfulness to his covenant, he makes retribution for our sins through Christ. You say, "Well, where is that in the chapter? Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Samuel says to the people, moreover, as for me, he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. For the Israelites, Samuel, he fulfills a dual role as an intercessor and as a teacher, praying for God's people and teaching them the good and the right way. As God's anointed prophet and priest, he promises to continue to intercede on be, before God on behalf of his people to seek forgiveness for their sins continually. He says, I won't sin in this way if I stop praying for you. Even though, saints, they had rejected Samuel. They had asked for Saul. So even though they reject Samuel, Samuel says, I'm not gonna stop praying for you. I'm not gonna stop teaching you the good and right way. I'm gonna keep doing what God has called me to do. God's people in our story, they have Samuel to intercede and they have Samuel to teach. And you say, wait a minute, what Samuel do we have? Who is our Samuel? Because we certainly need someone to intercede and teach us still. And of course, the answer is the greater Samuel. Who is the greater Samuel? It's Christ. The greater Samuel is Christ. Jesus Christ came in the flesh from heaven to earth to show us the good and the right way. And that was right through the cross right through the cross where God's holiness and grace meet together in the person of Christ. We see the brokenness in our marriages. We see it amongst children and their parents. We see it in our government. We see all this brokenness. And and instead of turning to God and being healed by God, we turn to medications and secular counseling and, and seminars and books and distractions. As a desperate people, we take desperate measures to remedy the brokenness. 1,000 years after Samuel, Jesus would come as the anointed and say, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, you want the good and the right way? He says, it's me. And he says, and no one will come to the Father except through me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And Christ offers himself. Like Samuel before the people, Jesus is able to stand before God. This is the most extraordinary teaching. Jesus is able to stand before the holy God. Of all creation. And he says to God, Open up the books, replay the tapes. Jesus Christ can say to the Father, I have not sinned once against you, Father, not one time. And the Father, would answer back as the people did, yes, not once, not even once. And so Christ can say to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he can say this, listen, words of great comfort. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. How so? Christ stood before God, holy and pure, and yet he was crucified and punished for our sins. And so as the great substitute, he can call us into his presence and into his person. The people rejected Samuel for Saul. Mankind rejected Christ. And we nailed him to a cross. But just like Samuel, who would not stop praying for his people, we have a Savior. A Savior who died on the cross. A Savior who was buried. A Savior who rose from the dead. And according to the Bible, he now is seated at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. He prays for you. He prays for me in the midst of our sin and our rebellion. We have the greater Samuel interceding and instructing us and that's how we can come before God and not be utterly terrified. That's how sinners like you and me can come before a holy God and not be utterly destroyed because God took the real thunder and the real rain and he poured it out on Christ. The real thunder, the real wrath of God was poured out on the Savior. Why? So that those who repent and believe can be spared so that those of us who have been called and saved by grace will not have the wrath of God poured out on us, just the opposite. We'll be forgiven, and we will receive the righteousness of the king. He will impute to us, he will give to us his righteousness freely. And that means that when God looks upon you right now, even in the midst of your sin and rebellion, if you are covered with Christ, then he sees the glory and majesty and righteousness of his son. If you're in Christ, covenant breaker, listen. Then he sees the faithfulness of the covenant that Christ kept. When Christ was in the garden, he cried out for God. There's another way for this cup to pass from me. He said, but your will be done, Lord. Christ kept the covenant to his last breath. And if you're in Christ, that means you've kept the covenant too. Not because of you, because of him. That means what? That means God takes from me a covenant breaker to a covenant keeper, just like him. Amen? Somebody said that. Thank you. Hmm. This is such a glorious truth. My prayer for you has been that your ears would not be stopped up this morning. That you would not require God to thunder from heaven to wake and stir your soul. That you would see his holiness and tremble. That you would see your sin and the depth of your wickedness and you would be grieved That you would then see Christ, a crucified, risen Savior, and you would put your trust and you would put your hope in Him. That you won't be afraid, but you'll turn to Him and you'll follow Him. That you'll fear God, you'll hear His voice, you'll obey His teachings, you'll submit to Him and love Him with all your heart. I'll read from the 103rd Psalm and close in prayer. Hear the thunder. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who Fear Him. So great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the East is from the West, so far has He removed our transgressions from us, if you're in Christ. As a Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed, He remembers that we are dust. Saints, fear the Lord rightly this morning. Flee to the cross in Christ and receive the blessings and the hope and the assuredness of the great work of the Savior. And if you have, then share it with someone who hasn't. Take this great message of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the hope in Christ and open your mouth and tell someone who doesn't know. Tell a father or a mother or a child or a sister or a neighbor or a coworker or a grocer, Tell them, this is great news. You can't just hold it in. Let your feet be beautiful as you take it to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I love you for this passage. I love that you would speak to us so clearly, that the gospel would be so steeped, in your word, a thousand years before Christ would come. Father, I pray that you would help us not be like the Israelites at Gilgal, not needing you to thunder from above. that you would open our ears this morning that we might hear you. How grievous, Lord, that you need to open our ears to hear you, the Creator, speak to us. If you be so gracious to do that, Father, that we could hear you speak and that we can see the truths revealed here in 1 Samuel chapter 12, that we can see all the times that we have asked for a king other than you and all the times that you have faithfully kept your covenant and called us back All the times that you have brought crisis in our life, causing us to repent. And all the times, Lord, that every time we repent, you've forgiven us. You have been faithful and will remain faithful because that's who you are. Your name is faithful. Embolden us, Father, in your faithfulness. Embolden us in the covenant that you kept through Christ. Embolden us. Give us strength and courage to not only live these holy lives that we're supposed to live and have been called to live, but to speak these truths to others and bolden us. I pray, Lord, that it would grieve our hearts that so many seats in this room are empty when your word is being proclaimed. That so many in our mission field have yet to hear the pure gospel, which has the power to save. By your grace and your mercy, take these words from this foolish, wretched sinner. Apply them to our hearts and minds. So that we will be a people that have truly been set apart to bring you honor and glory and bring you honor and glory. Your purpose, Lord, is for your name's sake. How blessed we are to be part of that grand endeavor. I pray all these things in Christ's most holy name. Amen.